0: good morning. The anticipation was great there. It was was all quiet. Dwayne wasn't here to clap for me, so I felt a little depressed coming in, but uh, (laughs) I'll set myself up for that. I'm not going to lie. Okay. Anyway, grab your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians. I have an interesting topic to to cover, and I have a feeling the the smaller crowd means word got out that we were talking about giving. So... uh, you should go home and shame everyone on Facebook for uh, missing today. I'm just kidding, partly. So, uh, no, we're going to actually be looking at give, and I'm almost scared to say this, for three Sundays in a row. So, not because I picked the topic of giving, but because we're in 2 Corinthians, and we're going verse by verse, and Paul spends the better part of two and a half chapters talking about giving um, from different angles for different reasons. He uses what we might be tempted to call manipulation at one point, and we're going to explain why it's not, but it does seem to feel like that when we get through it. So we're going to look at giving from different perspectives. There's a tendency for us to come up with maxims Um, when we talk about giving as a way to define all giving. You've heard of things like give till it hurts, give till it helps. You know, if you got to give, and it's got to be sacrificial or it doesn't count, or Um, There's, well, I only have to give my 10%, the rest of it's mine. We always create these systems in our mind that justify the way we give. And really, if we're trying to justify the way we give, actually what that means is we're giving with a, a bad heart, regardless of how much or how often we're giving our attitudes wrong if we're trying to justify ourselves in it. We want to do it God's way. We want to do it from the right spirit. And the fact of the matter is, is there's a lot of different angles at play in our giving, there's a lot of different contexts we give and There's a lot of different heart checks we have when we're giving. I know one comes from the passage we'll get to last in the third week. God loves the cheerful giver, and we say, "Well, you know, if I'm not happy about it, then I'm excused. I don't have to give." Well, some people might never give if the mat- the matrix, the 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 test question is, "You got to be happy about it, or don't do it." Well, okay, we got to look at it from multiple angles and see what's going on. In the past, have you ever had to obey God when you didn't want to? All right, so sometimes you know we've got to be careful how we interpret things. So, we're going to look at giving from the Apostle Paul's perspective, which means from a lot of perspectives scattered all throughout a lot of run on sentences and paragraphs. See, Apostle Paul, right? So, we're going to deal with it, and he's trying to make a simple argument. And to make sense of that argument, we have to go back and look at the history and background of the letter. And you may say, okay, we've gone over that a thousand times already, and many of you could probably quote it to me at this point, but not today. So what we've done so far with all of our background study of 2 Corinthians is we've looked at the specific background for the occasion of this specific letter. Now, Paul's world did not revolve around the city of Corinth and around the church there. He loved that church so much that it, it did impact his ministry In other places, certainly, but Paul had a lot more going on in his world, in his life, than what was going on in this one church. In fact, if you think about it, we've got a lot of letters from the Apostle Paul, and it may be significant that two of them are indeed to this one church, but there's a lot of letters by Paul that are not to this church, dealing with things that have nothing to do to this church. And so what we're going to do now is, as we think about the specific scenario Paul was writing in, we have to step back. And think about what's going on in Paul's life and his greater ministry and how that impacts everything Paul is doing. And then even though he's got this specific scenario where there's been grief between him and this church, even in that he can't get away from his bigger ministry. He's going to settle the problem and then we might say get right back to business. And so let's just think about the Apostle Paul real quick. Just a quick historical sketch of his life. Many of you know. When we first encounter this guy in the scriptures, he's not going by the name Paul, he's going by the name Saul, and he belongs to what branch of Judaism? The Pharisee is very good, he's, in fact, he had it not been for Jesus, he probably would have been the most famous Pharisee to ever live. Instead, his teacher was. The guy he studied under in Jerusalem is the most famous Pharisee from that era, and because of that, ever most famous Pharisee who ever lived. Paul was his protege, grew up in the church, and Paul even, you know, humbly um, submits the notion later in his life that he was probably the best Pharisee there had ever been. I mean, Paul's a humble guy, though, and so he's saying that, get this, he's saying that with a clear conscience. Like, yeah, I was probably the best Pharisee there ever was. Now, what do Pharisees emphasize? The law, following the law. They're good at it, and as a good Pharisee, he was also very good at hating people who weren't like him. That's just how they did it. And so you can imagine, in first century Judaism, Paul represented a part of Christian I mean sorry, a part of the Jewish faith that did not like every other eth- ethnicity on the planet. They had a general catch-all term. You're either Jewish or you were Gentile. You're either one of us or you're not one of us. That's like when there's only two races, white, non-white, you know, in older survey forms. The Jews did the same thing. Their survey form would have said, um, a decent human being, as in Jewish, or not. You know, that's the Gentile word, other. So, in early Christianity, when the gospel actually reaches Gentiles for the first time, you can imagine the conflict going on in the early church. You've got Greeks, people who aren't circumcised, people who, people who eat bacon, coming to church with us. Now, we kind of say the reverse. We find out somebody doesn't eat bacon, and we're like, what? You know? All right, so just reverse it. That's the, what's going on. It's a big deal. And we, we say this jokingly, but in all reality, all the early conflict in the church has to do with this very thing. Half of them at first are Jewish, half of them Gentile, and eventually it gets progressively and progressively larger on the Gentile side. And many of the Jews don't accept Christ at all, and the ones who did become a minority in the early church, even though historically they're the spiritual superiors. And so they end up, Paul ultimately calls them the weaker Christians, because they still emphasize all these food laws, feeling that they have to do this, and that, you can imagine, causes even more tension in the early church. So Paul, having come from that background, and now completely set free in Christ, becomes the champion of what we might call justification by faith alone. He's going around preaching, believe in Christ. That is it. Call on Christ as Lord, confess him as Lord, and you will be saved. You do not have to jump through the hoops. And so he's preaching this glorious, grace-based, no works, faith-only gospel. He's excited about it everywhere he goes. And the Gentiles are coming in droves to Christ because of this message, yet... And every single church Paul is working with, the original nucleus of that church, Paul always started where? When he went to a new city and preached the gospel, he started in a synagogue with Jewish people. A small group of those Jews, every time, would come to faith in the Lord, and then that church would grow. You fast forward a few years, and that church still has some Jewish people in it, but it's mostly Gentile, and their culture is still part of them. Their culture is what they grew up doing, and there's all these conflicts In every church Paul goes to, that's why you see in so many of his letters, he deals with this Jew-Gentile distinction. In fact, Ephesians, the most generic of all Paul's letters, dedicates a large section of the letter to the barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles being torn down, that they should be unified, they have the same access, they are the same building in Christ. And so everywhere Paul goes, he's trying to help settle and help bring peace among the church. We saw in 1 Corinthians there's an extended section about whether or not you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. And he gives up some pretty complicated answers to that. He's like, well, technically you can. Yes, you can eat the meat if it's been sacrificed to an idol. But can Jews eat the meat if it's been sacrificed to an idol? Their conscience won't let them. And if you're hanging out with them, even though you have freedom, it would be better not to eat meat ever for the sake of peace. He's, gosh, He was willing to give up bacon for the sake of unity in the church. So could you do that? Could you become a vegetarian for the sake of unity in the church? All right, it's it's hard, you know, maybe that's a heart check right there. All right, but that's what Paul was arguing. So everywhere he goes, Paul is trying to bring unity in the body. That's his big point over and over and over again. And so if you think about Ephesians, when he finally gets through with the doctrine and starts to practice all these commandments, the whole first section is about unity. We've got to walk in love. We've got to do this together. We've got to grow up into one mature man that's not separate, multiple bodies of Christ. We're trying to do it together. Paul had no concept of, well, let's just have a a First Baptist Jewish church and a First Baptist Gentile church. What a category for the Apostle Paul. If we're both under the blood of Christ, we should worship together. We should do this together. And if you've got to give up some freedoms to do that, then by all means give them up so that we can represent the unity of the body of Christ for all the world to see. Now, you can imagine, just like today, when we preach a gospel of unity, uh, people immediately go, you know what, that's totally right, that's worth it, let's just, let's just be unified. Just like how that doesn't go well in our day, it did not go well in Paul's day. The first large church debate in the Bible is found in Acts chapter 15, and this is the exact issue it's over. Now, they're a little more, uh, let's say, bold in the question. The question was essentially, can God save Gentiles? You should never start out your debate like that, right, because you don't get to tell God what he can or cannot do. The better question was, is God saving Gentiles? And Paul, of course, is leading the argument there saying, guys, I've been seeing it happen in every city, every place I've gone. Then Peter gets up. You remember Peter, right, the one who walked on water, also the one who preached to Cornelius when his whole household was saved. Peter gets up and says, guys, I'll... I saw it happen. These Gentile did not practice the law in any sense, but they believed in the gospel. The Holy Spirit fell on them just like it did us on the day of Pentecost, and they were saved right before my eyes. Clearly, God is doing this work, and he is saving not just us Jews, but he's saving people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. You get this lingo over and over and over again in the New Testament, and they settle it technically. At the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Now, anytime you settle an argument like that, everyone just immediately yields to the decision, right? <sighs> no. <laughs> so, Paul spends much of the rest of his career preaching the gospel, also trying to help unify the Gentile versus the Jewish church. Now, we'll get to this section in Acts chapter 19. People don't necessarily know the reference, but they know what happens in Acts chapter 19, because some of the coolest stories with the Apostle Paul all take place in Acts chapter 19. And he's in Ephesus, and one of the stories, actually doesn't even have him, it just has his name in it. The seven sons of Sceva, the Jewish exorcist, try to go cast out this demon, and they say, we, we want to cast you out in the name of Jesus, who Paul proclaims. And so the story's really about the, how awesome of an Apostle Paul is, even though Paul isn't present. It's, it's about his ministry. So these guys... Try to cast out the demon in the name of Jesus, who Paul proclaims. And the demons say, well, we know who Jesus is, and we've heard of Paul. Which is kind of scary. Like the demons are like, whew, we know who that guy is. But we don't know who you are. Because you know how that story ends. It does not go well for those, uh, those seven sons of Sceva at all. They leave naked and wounded. So that means they were wounded in two different realms, emotionally and physically. They leave, they were destroyed, and then after that is when the big riot happens. So much ministry, so much effectiveness in Ephesus that they actually cause a riot because the people who make idols in the town are losing money because so many people are converting to Christ that they're not buying idols anymore. People get mad, and Paul gets part of this big, massive riot. Well, right in the middle of that section, it says Paul resolved in his spirit, so meaning that the spirit led him to do this, as the lingo. It says, he resolved in his spirit to go to Rome. So he's in Ephesus. I don't know how well you know your geography. Let me try to do this backwards, looking at a map. So he's, he's in Ephesus. Rome would be over here. Right, I'm do, yeah, I'm having to do this backwards. I'm going to bear with me. So he's in Ephesus. Greece is here with Macedonia, the body of water, and then Greece. Another body of water, Rome. So he resolved in his spirit to go through Macedonia, which means up over the land bridge, and then back down into Greece on his way to Rome. And as soon as he gets to Greece, the next step would be to go to Rome, and he's going to go to Jerusalem in between. That's literally what it says. He decided, I'm going to go to Rome through Macedonia and Greece. And then he's like literally next door to Rome and He's going to make Jerusalem the next stop in between Greece and Rome. 2,000 miles out of his way. It would make more sense since he's here, right? Follow the logic. Let's just go down to Jerusalem now. Then we can go back up and go through those regions and go to Rome. Our right. Acts doesn't tell us what's going on, but we find out in Paul's letters exactly what's going on. Here's what he's doing. You may remember when we did Acts a few years ago, Virtually all the persecution in the early church was localized to one region. Things like what happened in Ephesus and that riot were very uncommon. It wasn't usually Gentiles who were persecuting Paul and the Christians. Who was usually doing the persecution? It was the Jews. And where Jews in the largest numbers? Way back down here in Jerusalem. In fact, if you remember, why did, the, why did Christianity spread out of Jerusalem in the first place? Because the Jews were persecuting, at that time under the hands of Saul, so heavily that they had to leave the area which spread Christianity all over the globe. But the most destitute and poorest, the most persecuted of all Christians in the empire, of all Christians in, not yet Christendom, but in the kingdom spread out over the Roman Empire, the worst off Christians were the ones back down there where it all started, in Jerusalem. And what ethnicity are 99.9% of the Christians living in Jerusalem? They're Jewish. So Paul decides, I'm going to collect an offering from the Gentile churches. There's technically the Jews in these churches, but they're 5% maybe, maybe less in most of these regions. So let's get these Gentile churches to raise up an offering that he can take back down to the saints in Jerusalem, now what's Paul trying to do here? You can put, read, read between the lines pretty easily. If these Gentile Christians alleviate the need down in the Jerusalem church, Paul's hoping what happens between the Jewish and Gentile branches of the faith? Come together, an act of peace. He's going to call this work an act of grace. He's going to call it a ministry, a service to the saints, and we'll see. We won't get too detailed in it today because we'll be there in a couple of weeks, but he talks about at the end of chapter 9, his hopes and expectations that are going to overflow to the glory of God when this act of service gets there. So he's in Ephesus, and he says, I'm going to Rome, but before I go to Rome, I've got to collect this offering among the Gentile churches. And I'm going to take that offering back home, and then the Jews will love me, they'll love Jesus, they'll love the Gentiles, everybody will be happy. Of course, you know how that works out. What happens to Paul when he gets down there? Instant persecution. He does get sent to Rome, but uh, not willingly, right? How does he end up in Rome? As a prisoner of Rome, of all things. It's a fascinating story for the book of Acts. But we're in the middle of that story. So he's about to go to Corinth. He's been collecting the offering, and he's going to go to the last main city, which is Corinth, the church at Corinth, to get the last bit of the offering. So, so far in the letter, his whole focus has been on restoring his relationship with the church. So, he spends seven chapters bringing unity back together. You've repented. You've come back to me. We're going to work this out. Now, I'm going to show up and collect an offering. Now, a lot of people might say that's not the best business move. We just had a fight, and now I'm going to pass the offering plate, all right? But Paul has no category for pragmatics, has nothing to do with that for him. There's a much more simple issue at play, and it's going to be whether or not they want to be obedient to the gospel of Christ. So with all that in mind, he's about to go to the last major city. He's already collected almost all the money. One more big stop before he goes back to Jerusalem, and let's see what he has to say. So here we are. He's in Macedonia when he writes this. He says, We want you to know, brothers, eight chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers... About the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So, what's he starting off by saying? These churches up here in Macedonia—Philippi, Thessaloniki, um, Colossus, not Colosses in the other side—but these these Macedonian churches. He's saying, "I want you to know they did a pretty good job with this offering." Now, what's he doing? I mean, you know what he's doing. He's 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 preparing their hearts to have a little bit of a godly spiritual competition with the churches of Macedonia, okay? We'll get a little clearer on that next week, but just anchor that in your heart somewhere, and we'll, we'll work that out. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed and a wealth of generosity on their part. So he's using them... As a positive example, so I'm in this church. He's, he's in Macedonia. He, we don't know which city he's in, he's somewhere in that region, and they're having extreme affliction. Now we know that when he came, you go back to chapter seven, verse five. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So there's some sense in which there's persecution going on in the church in Macedonia. And so while they're experiencing persecution, or it's called affliction, in chapter 8, would you say they probably have more money than usual or less money than usual? Well, less. They're probably being persecuted, businesses probably shutting them out. And if it's from Jews and some of the Jewish members of the church, they might be completely destitute. Because of this, we don't know the exact circumstances. But Paul says they had a severe test of affliction. And during that severe test of affliction, they had two things. They had joy and they had poverty. And when you add joy and poverty together, it produced a wealth of generosity. Now, what's he saying about the church? This is widow's might stuff. This is, they didn't have hardly anything to give. But they were so joyous to participate in this thing Paul had going on. The idea that they could participate in the unity of the early church, that they could be part of God's mission. You know, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us the plan is to unite all things in Christ. Unity is a key fundamental aspect of what God is doing with all of creation, with us. So within the church, that should be abundantly clear. They had an abundance of joy to participate in that. It says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. Of their own accord meaning what? Paul didn't show up and say, empty your pockets right here. He just showed up with an opportunity. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what's going on. Do you want to participate in this? And they had the Isaiah, here am I, send me response. It's like, ooh, 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 yeah, I'll give as much as I can. I want to be part of that. So he is using Macedonia, the church is there, as an example for them. Verse 4, see what they did. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Wow, so what's their attitude towards this offering? Please let us be part of that. Wow, so this poor church is begging For the opportunity to give. And then Paul says this in verse 5. And this, not as we expected. (laughs) That's actually kind of funny that Paul would say that out loud. So in other words, they gave a little better than we thought they were going to. Well, for one, he knows the church is having persecution. He knows they're poor. He knows they don't have a lot. And then when they collect the offering, Paul's actually got more money there than he anticipated. They gave more than he expected, and he's going to give the basis for that, and this is foundational for us, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Now, he's going to tell them to excel in this, down in chapter, in verse 7, but excel in everything, you excel in all that, you need to excel in this particular act of grace as well. So if you want to be an excellent giver, that's where the title comes from, according to Paul's definition. This is absolute number one basic concept to become that giver. Verse 5, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Two parts. Number one, first, you give everything to the Lord. This is foundational. If you believe that you're supposed to give 10% to the Lord, you're 90% away from having a correct understanding. All right. How much of you is owned by God? Every single bit. There's all kinds of stories in the New Testament told by Jesus that illustrate this from different points. I love the one about forgiveness. Um, you Remember Jesus tells the parable about the man who had this unbelievably large debt and he begs and pleads with the master and the master forgives him and lets him go completely free of the debt. But then he goes out Finds a guy who owes him about $20 and starts to strangle the guy. The guy's begging and pleading, in fact, using the exact same words that the original guy had used with the master. And he won't have any grace with it. And he says, no, I'm going to throw you in prison until I get every, every penny of this minuscule nothing amount that you owe me. Word gets back to the master. And what's the master say? <laughs> he sends him to hell. Quick turn in the story. It's like, whoa, is this a literal story or is this a spiritual story? I didn't know the master could do that in the story, but that's what happens. So just think about the logistics of this. Did the guy owe the man $20 technically? Yeah. Does God care if the man owed him $20 technically? He doesn't. Because when you receive grace from God it invalidates your right to have wrath towards other people's sin against you. You hear that? You don't have a right now because it's been invalidated by God. Everything about it, that's just a spiritual thing. Finance is the exact same conversation. God owns you in every way. You've been made part of his family. All of it belongs to him. If God literally showed up and told you to give away Every penny you owned and every cent and any way you could consider an asset to give it all up, does he have the right to tell you to do that? And if you were his, what ought your response be? Every single penny he asks, what did they do? What did the church at Macedonia do? They gave everything to the Lord. That does not mean that they literally gave all of their stuff away But they acknowledged in their minds, in their hearts, that none of this stuff is actually theirs anymore. God has made them stewards of these things. And if the Lord wants me to do something with any of it, it's all His in the first place. He can do whatever He wants with any of it that has been given to me. That's step one. First, give everything to the Lord. Second, give according to the need. They weren't just throwing their money out on the streets. They had a specific need, a specific thing going on, and they gave as much as they could and a little bit more. Well, we might say a little bit more than was wise. They gave according to the need that was before them. All right, but let's see a second point here before we read any more. It says, giving is a form of God's grace. You'll see this come up over and over and over in the passage that they're giving this gift of grace, that they're participating in grace. And there's a bit of a play on words going in here because the word gift and the word grace share the same root in the Greek language. They're, they're the same thing. So there's a sense in which to say God gives you the gift of grace is like saying he graced you grace or he gifted you a gift. Right? They're related concepts. And when we give, now here's the fascinating thing, When we give, it's grace from two perspectives. It's God's grace to us to give, that we give. But it's also God's grace to others when you give. So grace gets doubled when you give. You get to experience God's grace in the giving, and others experience the grace of God in what is given. I've been on both sides of this. In ministry, I've been able to bless. I've been able to give. I've been able to do things that blessed someone else and far more often I've been on the other end of that where someone has extended God's grace to me in a time where I really needed it. In fact, there was one time I was, uh, you ever been depressed but still went to the Lord in prayer but with a bad attitude? Let's just be honest, okay? It's better to go honest than to fake it. He knows. You, You can't pretend to be in a good mood when you're not when we're talking to God. He knows where you are. And I remember praying for this thing one time. I was like, uh, "He's not—he's he, not even going to do this." I <laughs> had a terrible attitude about this prayer, but I was honest, and I did pray. Seven days later, God answered that exact prayer in the exact way I had requested. It's unbelievable experience of God's grace to me through another person. It wasn't like something just fell out of the sky, of course. I've had weird scenarios like that one time. I really wanted some mac and cheese one time, and I was like, right in the early days of planting the church, I was I was so poor, I shouldn't have been at the restaurant anyway. But I was at McAllister's, and I wanted that, the mac and cheese on the side, but I only had enough money to get like just this little soup, not even the bread bowl. I go there for the bread bowl, you know. Couldn't even afford the bread bowl, and I really wanted the bread bowl, the soup, and the mac and cheese on the side, but I just didn't have the money. Spent the $4 or whatever I had. It might have been 11 I think Anna was with me. And so we got, got our food, sat down, and I was so disappointed that I couldn't get the mac and cheese. And the waiter, waitress, walks out with a cup of mac and cheese and says, we have this random extra cup of mac and cheese. I just want to see if you wanted it. And I was like, that is Unbelievable. Absolutely, yeah, I mean, I I totally ate that. I felt like I was totally excused of eating healthy at that moment, you know. (laughs) This had God's handiwork all over it. So I I took it, and I delighted in it, and it was probably the tastiest bowl of mac and cheese I'd ever had. It was kind of like manna, you know, falling from the sky. That happens, right? But usually that's not the experience. God's chief way of acting in creation, in the church, in the body, through the body. He blesses us usually through someone else, and that is a double grace. It is a grace to you to get to participate. Have you ever really gotten to bless someone before? You had an opportunity to meet a need, to reach out to do something special and specific in someone's life, and it mattered to them. You were able to be part of God's work in them because there's no greater blessing than that. It's a wonderful experience. I mean, Jesus had something to say about that, and actually Paul quotes it, it's more blessed to give rather than to receive, That's a biblical concept out of the words words of Jesus' mouth himself, but it's a grace not only to them, it's a grace to you. But Let's keep going, I want you to see the, the true basis, oh, it's like seven after, okay, we're halfway through, let's see what happens. Where are we at? I totally lost my split, did we finish that paragraph, verse seven? No, we didn't. Verse 7, but as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you also excel in this act of grace. He wants this church to be good at a lot of things, but specifically, he's asking them, I need you to excel in this particular giving opportunity. Well, for Paul, this is a big deal. He's literally putting his life on the line for this offering. Because he knows on his way back to Jerusalem, that's when the prophet Agabus says, he takes Paul's belt and binds himself and says, Paul, this is what's going to happen when you get down to Jerusalem. And Paul did not change his mind. Paul said, I know, it was worth the risk. And he's telling them he's willing to put his life on the line. Or are they willing to put a little bit of money on the line? That's what the question is. Verse 8, I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. He wants to be proven right. And technically, he just said he was last week. Do you remember that? Their repentance proved that they were genuine believers. He says, now let your giving prove that your earnestness for the gospel is genuine. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So what becomes the example here of generous giving? Well, it's Christ. But think about it. Is not, not the basis for everything we do in the gospel, your third blank there? The basis for all our giving should be the gift of Christ's Redemption. That's the idea that we see the glory of what Christ has done for us. We see the glory of the gospel, and that overflows in us in gratitude, and joy and delight, and faithfulness and obedience. We know that what God has done is so great that we want to respond in faithfulness. The way Paul talks about it in Romans, is our response is not works, it's debt. We have a debt that we cannot pay, but we have a desire to faithfully live out and be generous because of the generosity given to us. This is really the foundation of all of our Christian ethics. Is Christ has done such a great sacrifice that it should be the basis of everything that we do. But let's keep going through I want to get to the end. So let's start in verse, Where we go, Um, 11. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completeness, or or sorry, by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Now he's setting them up here. That sounds good at first. Okay, well, you got to give based on what you have, if you have five dollars, you can't give six, right? That makes it, has to be, you got to have an eagerness to give, but you also have to have something to give. Now, he already gave the illustration of the Macedonian church. He would say on the general scale of things, they're really kind of more like the church we're giving to in Jerusalem. They're, they're poverty, they're stricken, they're afflicted, but they still gave out of what they had, meaning Paul was impressed maybe by their percentage more than necessarily by the total, right? So he's, he's setting it up, but hear how he says this. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. So what did Paul just tell us about the church at Corinth? They've got money. The church in Corinth may be poor people in it, but the church at Corinth has resources. And he set up a very interesting thing here. If you love communism, you could misquote this text and try to get the idea there's a greater burden on you if you have money and you are obligated to give it. But that's communism is a very different concept because the gospel is not saying that those people should just equally distribute the money, but rather... God has blessed you, and these people are in need. Therefore, why do you think God has blessed you? He's not forcing them to do anything. How do he start that paragraph? Verse 8, I say this not as a command. I'm not going to make you give anything. I'm not going to hold your Christian. I'm not going to excommunicate you if you don't give here. I'm giving you the opportunity here, and your wealth already gave you the opportunity here. How are you going to use it? Are you going to use it to participate in this means of grace? Now, see what he quotes, verse 15. And this will be the last verse we do today. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. What's he referencing there? That story comes from Exodus. I'll give you a hint. This is the manna. You remember they got out in the wilderness and they complained again, which is like just, that was just assumed. They, they were doing something, and they were complaining. And Moses got the complaint. He took it to God, and God said, all right, I'm going to give you manna. So manna is some bread-like substance that would fall out of the sky. And here was the trick with manna, is it was a gift from God. And you would go out there, and you would collect it. And it didn't matter how much you collected, you would only have enough For today, didn't matter how little you collected, you'd only have enough for today. Because if you came back tomorrow and you opened your jar from yesterday's manna, what would that look like? It'd be rotten. It'd be gross. You couldn't eat it. It would expire. Unless it was Friday. If you gathered all day Friday, and you gathered two days' worth, if you got up Saturday morning and opened your jar, this is magic manna, and literally it was, it would still be good. Because they weren't allowed to gather on the day. But this particular verse comes from the middle of that section. I think it's Exodus 16 or 17, right in that middle section. And if they gathered a bunch, they only had enough. And if they gathered too little, they still had enough. Because they weren't given those things because of to match or to show or to demonstrate how great someone was at gathering. Where'd the manna come from? It's just God's gift. The amount of manna you got had nothing to do with how good of a person you were. In fact, it's all going to come out in the water. You can't save it till tomorrow. What do you think Paul's using this illustration to say? Because you can't save anything till tomorrow. And We're getting more big picture here. Jesus words it a little bit differently in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't store up your treasures here on earth where moth and rust and thieves steal and all perish. Instead, store up your treasure in heaven. It's all going to come out equal in the end. You don't get to take any of it with you. None of it. It's not useful in that way. God has given you the extra manna. It's His. You can say, well, I've earned it. Well, if you take away, if we only use your work and take away all the things God did graciously for you, You wouldn't have any of it. Yeah, you worked. Okay, fine, yes. Is there a connection between how hard you work and how much manna you have? Sometimes. Sometimes there's not. Either way, the point is the manna, your resources, your blessings, your stuff, all of it, no matter how you look at it, came from God. So if you want to be an excellent giver, Give it with the right attitude, first and foremost. The foundation to the entire conversation is it's all His. It's His money, it's His blessing, it's His grace. So what is your response going to be when you look out in the kingdom of God and see need? Are you going to show, as He says in verse 8, that your love also is genuine? Or are you going to show the world that your love is your stuff. I love the way John Piper says it. God gives you the money so that you can show to the world that Christ is more valuable than that money. So what are you going to show the world with the way you give?